The following program, Faith on Sunday, may contain opinions, points of view, and statements related to individual faiths. Any such comments expressed on the radio program by the hosts, guests, and phone contributors, or via social media, are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Unity 101 Community Radio. The purpose of Faith on Sunday is to educate and inform listeners on the history and issues which affect individual faiths, beliefs and practices within the community as a whole. Hello and welcome to Faith on Sunday. This is Unity 101 Community Radio broadcasting across Southampton on 101.1 FM online at unity101.org and also available on all smartphones. My name's Richard Collins, and I will be your host for the next two hours. I am a member of Above Bar Church. We're a church which meets in the city centre. You may have seen our entrance right there on the high street next to Waterstones. Today we're going to be talking about the Christian faith. But more specifically, as you might expect, we're going to be talking about Christmas. Before we begin, we'd like to politely express that whatever we say in this programme is based on our own readings, the teachers of various learned people, and from our own understanding about the subject. If you agree, then we will find this very encouraging. However, if you disagree, then we will not be offended, as of course we all have the freedom to form our own opinions and views, and the choice to, to agree or disagree. Thank you for your understanding. Well, with me in the studio today for today's Faith on Sunday are Helen Savage. Helen works as a lawyer who specializes in marriage and family mediation. Very happy to have her with me today. She also attends Above Bar Church. Also, we have Peter Williams. Pete is the author of various books on philosophy. He is a well-known speaker on matters of faith and philosophy. And he works on and off with Damaris Trust, a charity which helps people explore the ideas in movies and provides resources to enable people to engage with ideas of faith and culture. And after seven o'clock, we'll have Rani Namahi. Rani was born in Bahrain with parents originally from northern India. She'll be with us with some of her thoughts on Christmas also. Faith on Sunday is an educational program. Each week, you will hear from different faiths who will share about their beliefs in order to provide a better understanding, thus creating a cohesive society for all to share and enjoy. We'll be here for the next two hours, and during each hour, we'll be reading from our holy book, which for Christians is the Bible. We'll explain how the Bible is still relevant here and now today. We'll also tell you how our faith works and how we seek to make a difference within our local communities. Later, we'll tell you about some of the events taking place around the city during this season, and as you can imagine, there are quite a lot. So we'll just give you a flavour of what's out there. Carol services are very non-threatening. The music is wonderful, of course. And if you're open to finding out about what Christianity is about, then attending a carol service in one of the local churches is a great way to do that. Finally, there'll be a chance to answer your questions later on in the programme. We'll do our best to answer them towards the end. Perhaps you'd like to share something significant about Christmas. We'd love to hear from you. So, please call us and ask any question about our faith on Southampton 8023-5055. You can also email us on studio at unity101.org. Text the word UNITY then space plus a message and send to 60999. 
Our producer, Ram Kalyan Kelly, will take your calls and will then call you back and take you live on air towards the end of the program. But now, time for our first song. This is called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day by Casting Crowns. Casting Crowns are one of the biggest bands in Christian music right now, and this song expresses a longing for peace to truly come on earth as in heaven. That was Casting Crowns with I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. If you've just tuned into Unity 101, you're listening to Faith on Sunday with me, Richard Collins. And this week we're looking at the Christian faith and specifically Christmas. We'll be right back after this. Educational, entertaining, informative, discussions, debate. On FM and online. Your community station, Southampton's Unity 101. The Faith on Sunday program is sponsored by International Foods at Derby Road and Portswood Road. International Foods is the city's supplier of fresh foods to the catering trade and the public alike. International Foods offer great quality at reasonable prices, so why not visit us today and check out our many in-store offers. Call us on 80220914 or go online at internationalfoods.co.uk. Thousands of listeners, 10 languages, 24 hours a day. Southampton's Unity 101. Good evening. If you've just tuned into Unity 101, you're listening to Faith on Sunday. And this week we're looking at the Christian faith. An important aspect of our faith is the Bible, our holy book. And I'm delighted to introduce Helen Savage. Um, Helen is a member of Above Bar Church. She's also a lawyer who is an expert on mediation with marriage and family. And uh, she's going to bring us some thoughts now. I believe you're going to read from Luke's Gospel. Over to you, Helen. Thank you very much, Richard. Richard has asked me to reflect on how it might feel to be Jesus' parents and in particular thinking about Mary's fears and struggles. I'm going to start by reading from the Gospel of Luke, um, starting with a passage in which an angel announces the birth of Jesus to Mary. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your words to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. 
At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfil his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him, from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. I have got two children, Harry 12 and Tom 8. I remember clearly the day on which they were both born in the clean, sterile and safe environment of Princess Anne Hospital in Southampton. I can also clearly remember how and when I told my husband Tim that I was pregnant and our joy and excitement about each baby. How different could this be from Mary's experience? I was 30 when I had my first child and still felt I did not have a clue what I was doing. In keeping with Jewish custom, Mary was likely to have been betrothed when she was around 12 and the birth of Jesus to have taken place about a year later. She was a mere child and probably only one year older than my son Harry is now when she gave birth to Jesus. In the modern United Kingdom, where each year thousands of teenage girls get pregnant, Mary's predicament has undoubtedly lost some of its force, but in a closely-knit Jewish community in the first century, the news an angel brought could not have been entirely welcome. The law regarded a betrothed woman who became pregnant as an adulteress subject to death by stoning. Yet Mary's response to the angel's news is to accept God's plan for her life and to call herself blessed. She sings praises to God for his love and mercy. I don't think I would have responded like that. She seems able to trust that God will get her through this. I also believe that God will get me through difficulties, but for me this is not consistent and sometimes it's much easier to trust than at other times. Malcolm Muggeridge observed that in our day, with family planning clinics offering convenient ways to deal with unplanned pregnancies, it is, in point of fact, extremely improbable, under existing conditions, that Jesus would have been permitted to have been born at all. Mary's pregnancy, in poor circumstances and with the father unknown, would have been an obvious case for an abortion, and her talk of having conceived as a result of the intervention of the Holy Spirit would have pointed to the need for psychiatric treatment and made the case for terminating her pregnancy even stronger. Thus our generation, needing a saviour more, perhaps, than, at any, than any that has ever existed, would be too humane to allow one to be born. On the eighth day after Jesus was born, in accordance with Jewish custom, Mary and Joseph took their new baby to the temple to be circumcised. While they were there, an old man called Simeon predicted that Jesus would cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, Anne said to Mary that a sword will pierce your own soul too. 
This might have been the first time that Mary learned that she was going to suffer by watching her child suffer. As we know, Jesus was crucified on the cross when he was 33 years old. It says in John 19 that Mary was near the cross, watching one of the most appalling and unbearable sights for any mother, her beloved son being humiliated and tortured. But nevertheless, she was there to provide the comfort of her presence. In the early days of Jesus' life, it is hard to know how much Mary would have taken on board or understood about her child's future. She had been told he was chosen by God and was going to be someone special. As we will hear from Richard, Mary will see people bow down and worship Jesus as a baby. Certainly in the light of Simeon's comments, she would have had a good idea that being Jesus' mum might not have been a piece of cake. I spend a lot of my time worrying about my children. I worry about many things, most of which are completely unrealistic and unlikely ever to happen. I know that I should trust them to God's care, but I wonder whether God will look after them as well as I do. In truth, my plans for them involve avoiding all unhappiness and suffering whatsoever. I fear that God might use them to serve him in a way that I don't like the idea of, say working abroad where I can't keep an eye on my precious darlings at all times. I often wonder how Mary copes with her knowledge of the difficulties which lay ahead for her child. However, from now onwards I plan, having thought about Mary in much more detail than I ever have done before, to take inspiration from Mary's trust in God and try to remember that God has my children's future in his hands and that those hands are much safer than mine. Wonderful, Helen. That was that was fantastic. Um, I noticed uh, how your main point was to do uh, with trusting God. And uh, you mentioned quite correctly that uh, first century Palestine, the, the Jewish society of the time, was an honor-shame culture. <clears throat> what do you think it would have been like for Mary when she received the news and then the way she would have been vilified within her own community? That must have been very difficult for her. I don't think we can begin to imagine how that would have felt. I think she was a mere child in our terms. Um, I know that was different in the culture at the time, but 12, 13, 14 yeah, years 13, old. 13, 14, very young. unimaginable what that would feel like. Um, and the fear of what might happen to her as a result, um, I think probably she'd have thought the most likely was that G- Joseph would uh, break off the engagement or the betrothment. Um, I don't know how worried or realistic it was that she might have been stoned. I think it probably was a realistic possibility. Um, and I would have reacted with terror and I'd have been pretty cheesed off, actually. Yeah, and I think. <laughs> but, but the thing about her, though, is that when you read about her in Luke's Gospel, no doubt all of those fears were going through her heart and her mind. But what we have from her is this beautiful song that talks about trusting God. Trusting God in difficult times when we're asked to do things which cause great pain and suffering to us. But she held on to the promises of God, didn't she? Yes, she did. And the way that she praises God, even when things are difficult, is truly an inspiration for all of us. Um, It reminds me of the song, Blessed Be Your Name, when he gives and he takes away, but still I will say, Blessed Be Your Name. Um, And I think it is hard to praise God in the difficult times, but probably like Mary, I have always found that in the really tough times, that's when he really comes through. And he is there and he does support me and he does love me. And I have a greater knowledge of his presence in those times, and maybe Mary did too, than I do at the calmer times of my life. I think that that's that's exactly right. That uh, what we see from here, this uh, story of Mary, is a person who, even at such a young age, is able to recognize that God's hand was on her life. 
and she would face any kind of shame, any kind of vilification, because she knew that God was was with her. I'd like to move on to uh, another subject now, which comes out in a, a, a later section of the story. We know that the angels come to the shepherds and they do their hallelujah chorus, uh, and they come out with those very famous uh, words at the end, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Peace on earth. I know that you're involved with uh, marriage and family mediation, and the one thing that you don't see very often is peace between couples who are struggling. Why is it that people cannot find peace on earth as much as we would like to see? Well, there's a hard question to answer, isn't it? Um, the couples that I see are struggling and facing probably one of the biggest challenges that they'll ever face in their lives. I see the couples together, or the ex-couples together, so we work on how we can um, help them co-parent better when they're living separately, and we look at how um, we can resolve the financial situation or the financial separation between them um, without going to court. So it is a way of bringing some element of peace into a very difficult situation. Um, I think the reason that peace is so hard to find on earth is because it is most people or many people wouldn't believe that Jesus or God had anything to offer them in that area. Um, and certainly the people I see are struggling usually to put each other first. Um, they do find it easier to put their children first, as lots of us do, but sometimes that can still be a challenge when you're really caught up with something that's really tough that is happening to you. It's hard to keep that and the kids in perspective. I so, often, so is the lack of peace really then to do with our self-centeredness, really? That's certainly... Yeah part of it isn't it yes i think that is part of it for me it's to do with remembering that jesus and god or god in particular wants me to treat my husband well he might have a different view on that and he's listening at the moment so i'll <laughs> wait for his comments when i get home um but when i fall down and get it wrong he forgives me partly not because he wants to i think but because he knows that God expects him to forgive well, me. Well, that sounds like grace and peace are mm -hmm. intimately connected. We had that last uh, time we did Faith on Sunday, grace and peace. Because when we know that we're forgiven, that gives us a greater sense of our identity as a child of God, and therefore more able to extend grace to others. And when we extend grace, that's when peace comes into to homes. Isn't that right? That's right. I think that's the only way you can find peace in a home. And we, we all know that or those of us who are married or living together know that it's a constant compromise. You very rarely get your own way. It feels like that in anything at all. Um, and that the only way to keep peace in the home is to forgive over and over and over again. But we know we can do that because God forgave us as well. So I really try and hold that. We try and hold that in the centre of our marriage. And I think that saves us on many occasions. Let me ask a, a kind of a, a wider question, which is, how do you think or how do you see God bringing peace into the world today? Is it, is it only through the church or does he work through uh, individuals who are uh, following his purposes? How is God bringing peace into the world? I think he certainly brings peace through the church. That's definitely one of the major ways that he brings it. For me, um, becoming a Christian, I became a Christian through Above Bar Church just because we went along there for our marriage preparation. They welcomed us in. Um, and then we never looked back, never got out again. So we've been there for many years now. Uh, so for me, uh, the church 
and particularly above Bar Church, has been absolutely fundamental in developing my faith and sticking with it and pursuing it. Um, but I do believe that God works in lots of different ways, and, and I do believe that he um, reaches people and talks to people in lots of different ways as well. I think that's one of the difficulties, though, for us as Christians. We believe in a God, uh, well, Jesus described as the Prince of Peace, mm. And yet we see so much war, so much bloodshed, so much evil which goes through the world, whether it's abuse of children or it's uh, you know, warring factions in the Congo or all kinds of different evil. What kind of hope do you think Jesus brings when we look at the baby in the manger? Why do we have cause for hope in the future, do you think? I think we have cause to hope in the future because Jesus gives us the hope that we will be forgiven because we all get up to no good, even if we're all not causing wars and murdering and do dreadfully disastrous things. But we all do things that we're not proud of. um, And we have the hope and the knowledge that we will be forgiven for that. Um, And that is a message of hope for everybody. It's my own personal experience. And I just have to trust that God is working in everybody's lives all through these terrible experiences that many people go through and that many people perpetrate, um, and that if they are open to it, they will receive their own forgiveness. And once they've got that, it is almost impossible not to change the way you're behaving. That's certainly my view, my feeling. Just a, fi- a final, final question to do with the humble setting of Christ's birth. That's often commented on to do with this Christmas story. Uh, Christ is born into poverty in a a humble home in Bethlehem, a small village south of Jerusalem. What's your understanding of humility? What what does that mean to you? Humility for me um, means knowing that Jesus died for me, even uh, because even if there'd be nobody else around, he'd still have done it for me, and that my behaviour and my sin have put him there, put him there on the cross, and that is a very humbling feeling. Um, It's also the knowledge that when I do something well or something goes well, that actually really that's largely God behind it. Me working with him and me working jolly hard at many things, um, but it's God behind it. And most of these achievements or any achievements that I do have are really down to God. Thank you, Helen. We will be right back with more on the Christian faith after this. Thousands of listeners, 10 languages. 24 hours a day. Southampton's Unity 101. You're listening to Faith on Sunday here on Unity 101.1 FM, and today's program is looking at the Christian faith and specifically the theme of Christmas. Just before the break, we heard from Helen Savage reading from the Bible. Our theme today, as I said, is Christmas, its meaning, and also its traditions. We're travelling all over the map from personal reflections on the message and meaning of Christmas to the different traditions of Christmas and also some historical background about the nativity story itself, which Christians believe really took place and is still enacted in schools all across the country. In fact, we're still making movies about the story. So let's take a look at some other aspects of Christmas. Uh, Helen, if I can turn to you once again. Some people say that Christmas is really just about the family. It's about getting uncles and aunts and embarrassing Christmas presents together and Christmas pudding and crackers and all of that kind of thing. How do you respond to the 
the charge that we should leave Christ out of Christmas. It's just a secular midwinter feast. I love Christmas. Christmas is the most exciting time of the year for me. I spend all of December getting excited about it. I want the Christmas tree up straight away. I love. Do you have your Christmas tree up already? No, but only because my husband wouldn't get it oh. today. <laughs> um, I have. Uh, yes, I love it. I love all aspects of it. I think that's because my mum loved it, um, and I. So I love the family side of Christmas. I love the Christmas tree. I love the carols. I love everything that has got to do with the giving presents, the receiving presents. Absolutely all of it. Um, however, I also now I've become a Christian. Um, have the extra dimension which is that I also believe that this is when Jesus came into the world and that is such an exciting, um, momentous occasion and it now means that I can celebrate just with an extra dimension to it, really. I know that's the true meaning of Christmas. I know all the other bits really are the sidelines now. However, I don't want to pretend that I don't love the sidelines um, and so the joy for me has just doubled in Christmas. It hasn't decreased it. Sometimes I think you think becoming a Christian might make it a little bit more... You can't, can't focus on the other bits quite as much, but I seem to manage to do both very successfully. <laughs> do you think that uh, it's too commercial nowadays, a lot of advertising on TV, a lot of kids wanting the latest technology, that kind of thing? Uh, do you think we're slightly off on our focus sometimes? Yes, I do think we're slightly off on our focus. Certainly my children, in particular, my youngest son, Tom, wants all the latest technology. His, Chris, his Christmas list runs to hundreds and hundreds of pounds worth. Um, one of them, last year, he just had a £50 note as one of the... Third, he, had, he, he has a, you know, he's oh, he a very... Wanted commi- a he wanted a £50 note. note as well as lots of other things. So, <laughs> he... Uh, yes, yeah, so, yes, it is. There is a, a large over-focus on, commercialize, on the sort of commercialisation, the adverts. Um, if we just need to get a balance. We need to keep, we need to keep some of it there the fun part that the kids really enjoy but it's just reminding them what it is really all about and look I think just some different techniques in the family um talking about what money we could give to charity whether you could whether you could give one of your presents away um to somebody who might have a greater need of it um so I think it's keeping a balance and keeping the children aware of what we're really celebrating while allowing them to have some fun with it as well sometimes when I think of the wider society you've got Santa Claus or Father Christmas. He's a big guy in the red suit with the white trim, uh, with the beard, of course. And then they've also got the baby in the manger. And sometimes they they get confused. Mm-hmm. So Santa Claus is turning up to the manger, and it all gets a bit confusing. What do you think about that? Well, I think it, yes, I think it probably does get a bit confusing, and it's confusing about whether Jesus is magic, whether Father uh, Father Christmas is magic, whether it's uh, yes, and who does what. And who is there and who isn't? Um, yes, although, but children do get confused about these things. And as long as we keep talking to them about it, um, explaining the real meaning of Christmas, teaching them that in ways that are, teaching them in ways that are appropriate to their ages, um, maybe bringing them into church. Certainly, above bar, the children work is second to none. It's absolutely fantastic. The children really enjoy going in, and um, I do rely on them quite heavily to, you know, keep educating them appropriately we back it up at home but uh yes i think it's getting the children into church making them feel comfortable there making them feel like it's a family that it's their home um and their spiritual family people there who love them as well as us wonderful thank you helen Uh, that was helen savage um 
Now I would like to turn to my other guest this evening. Uh, Pete Williams is with us. Pete is the philosopher in residence at Tamaris Trust. He's the author of a, uh, a number of different works on philosophy and faith. Pete, I wonder if you could help us out. Tell us about the big man, Santa Claus. <laughs> Where did he come from? Gracious me. Well, this uh, Saint Nicholas is a Catholic Uh, saint. Um, very little is actually known historically about him, but he seems to have been born in the middle of the, uh, the third century and to have died around about the middle of the fourth century AD. And uh, it seems that um, he had a rich father uh, who died early on and left him a lot of money, uh, and that he used this money to give anonymous uh, gifts to people And in particular, there's a story about him giving money uh, to save three young girls uh, from going uh, either into slavery or, or prostitution. It's not quite sure, but the, he gave these anonymous gifts of money so they had dowries so they could get married rather than uh, going into destitution. And that this sort of started the, the legend Uh, of uh, the, the gift-giving St. Nicholas. And there's even a legend that one of the ways in which he anonymously gave this money to these girls was he dropped some money down the chimney oh, of their house. There's the chimney connection. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so uh, people uh, locally started hanging up their socks under their, under their uh, chimneys to see, you know, well, maybe that St. Nick will drop some gold coins down our chimneys. Uh, and uh, that's sort of, you can see how the traditions evolve from them. But today we have, you know, the big man in the suit mm. and we've got the elves and he lives in the North Pole. <laughs> I'm guessing that's some sort of 20th century connection. Yes, yes. So St. Nicholas was, this is all in around what, what it would now be modern day Turkey. Uh, but then uh, Dutch uh, immigrants to America uh, took uh, Saint, Saint Santa Claus, which okay, is their name for St. Nicholas, uh, to America And then I, I think it's more of a 20th century sort of Coca-Cola uh, dressing up uh, the, the sort of Father Christmas image that we know of today. Wonderful. Another aspect of Christmas, of course, that we have in this country is the connection with Victorian England. Mm. Uh, and in particular, Dickens, Christmas Carol. Yes. Uh, and we've got Christmas trees. Helen already mentioned the Christmas mm. tree. Mm. We have holly. We have Boxing Day, we have Christmas pudding, a lot of the foods. Where are these mm. traditions mm. coming from? Well, the, the, the Christmas tree, the evergreen Christmas tree with the candles on it and so on, uh, that comes into Victorian uh, Britain through uh, Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, who comes from Germany and imports this German tradition uh, of the Christmas tree. Uh, and, and they actually put candles on the actually, tree. Yeah, yeah. It, it's like health and safety <laughs> would be, you know, turning over in their grave, wouldn't they? Uh, yeah, so be careful if you have genuine candles on the tree. Uh, nowadays, much better to have the, the little safe electric lights, Indeed. I think. But yeah, that's where that comes from. Um, but there's that sense of the, the, the evergreen, the, 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 the everlasting life uh, okay. connection oh, with the right. everlasting life that Christians believe we have uh, in, in Christ. Um, so there is something of a Christian meaning in the tradition that's been imported. And, and similarly, you were talking about the, the sort of the holly and the ivy and so on, going back to medieval and sort of pagan traditions about the green man of the forest, the spirit of the forest, but they're, they're evergreen things. And so when Christianity uh, replaces paganism in the hearts of, of the Brits, 
um, they still use that old imagery to then talk about their new religious beliefs. Well, that's very interesting because some people do say that Christmas is really just this midwinter feast from pagan mm. times and that somehow we Christians have stolen it from the pagans. <laughs> did we steal it or did it just as as Britain became Christianized, did it just morph into the what we have today? That's right. I think it's much more of a, a morphing that the, the population gradually of their own free will became Christian, um, but drew upon their heritage uh, and those symbols that they knew well uh, to talk about their new religious beliefs. Okay, moving on now to the actual Christmas story itself. We've heard a little bit from Helen uh, to do with Mary and mm. you know her age. Talk to us a little bit about Mary and Joseph, their family connections. Mm. Give us a little background about who these people are. Sure. Well, certainly on Joseph's side, and perhaps on Mary's side as well, that's disputed. Um, they, of course, trace their lineage back as Jews to, to Abraham, but particularly on Joseph's side through uh, the figure of King David, uh, the most important uh, Old Testament king. Uh, and there are various uh, prophecies uh, within the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah figure coming and uh, sort of filling out the the image of the, the throne of David, carrying on that line, and the Messiah being in the line of David. Uh, so um, the New Testament draws upon those and applies those to Jesus and says it's, it's important that he is uh, a descendant of King David. And in fact, um, it's so important, isn't it, that... In Matthew's Gospel, you have the 14 generations repeated, what, three times, and then you come up with Jesus, and he's the perfect, he comes at exactly the right moment in history. That's he? right. The, the genealogy that, that's mentioned there isn't one that, that's just listing um, sort of in order every generation. It's, it's structured in a very sort of careful way to deliver a theological message, uh, as you say, and I think that's true of both the, the genealogies and if you read them, compare in Matthew and Luke, you'll see that very different names are mentioned. Uh, and there's various, you know, theologians talk about various different ways in which uh, there might be uh, theological meanings uh, being uh, given by the writers of the Gospels through who they choose to mention, uh, whether they choose to, uh, to go down uh, uh, certain lines of the family uh, or, or others, um, whether they both try to trace back to David or not. And okay, so got you. Now, Helen spoke a little bit about Mary. I wonder if you could um, comment on the role of Joseph in the story. Because while Mary is the one who is carrying the child, mm. Joseph is the one who has to trust what his wife-to-be is saying about her encounter with God. And although in that society he would have been tempted to just cast her off, mm. He receives a dream, doesn't he, from yes, God? Tell us right. about so that. So he, he is tempted to, 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 to cast her off, as you say, although he wants to do it quietly uh, for her own sake and sort of not put her to public shame. But he does want to call it off. But then he has a vision of an angel in a dream. Um, Mary has the angel Gabriel actually appearing to her, but Joseph has this vision of, of an angel in a dream saying, no, this is of God. Don't put away. Take her uh, to be your betrothed and, and go through with it and uh, he actually does which uh, again shows um, this faith in action it, it's not either on Mary's part or Joseph's part it's not the kind of blind faith that the new atheists talk about religious people having 
Um, they have reasons for trusting. They have, you know, the angel appears to Mary. That's a pretty good sign that God is, is telling you something. Um, but uh, they actually have to then trust that, trust that God will get them through it, despite the, the social appropriate of the time, despite the dangers that, that we talked about, that everything will work out in God's providence. Yeah, I'm a great admirer of Joseph. Um, I see him as a figure who is placed in a very unenviable position. And yet, when he receives that dream, he is set on his course. Mm. He is going to trust his wife. And he is, most of all, he is going to trust God, that God is going to be with him throughout and all the way through. And he's a real real role model, one one of my heroes for sure. You are listening to Faith on Sunday here on Unity 101.1, and today's program is looking at the Christian faith, and most specifically at Christmas. We'll be right back after this. Educational, entertaining, informative, discussions, debate, on (laughs) FM and online. Your community station, Southampton's Unity 101. It doesn't really matter about the colour of your skin. The only thing that counts are the feelings held within. It doesn't really matter if you're thin or if you're fat. It's the way you treat your others, and that's a well-known fact. We're a multicultural city, and that means me and you. We're like one great big family. Every woman, child and man, together we can live in harmony, stop racism crime and poverty I believe that together we can together we can welcome back my name is Richard Collins you're listening to Faith on Sunday today discussing Christmas and it's time for some more music this one is called God is with us again by casting crowns Good evening, you're listening to Faith on Sunday with me, Richard Collins. That was God is With Us by Casting Crowns. Now, I wonder if you ever attended a school where they performed a nativity play. Nativity plays are great, aren't they? You get Mary and Joseph, aged eight and six, shuffling across the stage, and Mary says something like, Joseph, behold, my time has come. Find me a place to have the baby. And Joseph knocks on doors, asking, Is there any room in the inn? Until one kindly innkeeper tells him to use the stable around the back. You get the impression that first century Palestine was a rather inhospitable society. Then after the baby is born, first angels, always looking lovely, and dozens of shepherds pack the stage around the manger. Then the three wise men. But because Class 1A has 33 kids... A bunch of kings turn up too. Never mind that there were no kings and the wise men probably arrived much, much later. Many of the errors that you'll see in nativity plays have their roots in a little-known book written a couple of hundred years after Christ. It's called The Protevangelium of James and was rejected by church leaders very early on. Not only does the author appear not to know the geography of the region, but he adds in fanciful details. Perhaps the worst error, though, is the impression the story gives of Mary's breathless arrival on the night of the birth. In fact, what happens in the book is that Joseph dumps her in a cave, runs off to find a midwife. 
By the time he gets back with help, the baby's been born. What we have nowadays is a hasty search for lodging that ends up in a commercial inn. Neither is found in Luke's Gospel. So let's hear the story. This is the first part of Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Thank you, Helen. The story is very familiar to some, to others less so. If you've lived in Britain all your life, I'm sure you will have heard the story before. To Christians, of course, it's very, very familiar. We read about it every single year. Now, one of the problems with many nativity plays is that the couple arrive in the town and we're always given the impression that there's nowhere to stay. Well, frankly, that's very unlikely. The scholar Ken Bailey, who lived in the Middle East for most of his adult life, writes this. In the Middle East, historical memories are long, and the extended family with its connection to its village of origin is important. In such a world, a man like Joseph could have appeared in Bethlehem and told people, I am Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathat, the son of Levi, and most homes in town would be open to him. In Asian communities, and in fact in most countries in Asia, Latin America and Africa, the family is far more important than it is here in the UK. It's not that family's not important here, but it's just not quite as important as in other parts of the globe. And in first century Palestine, it was hugely important. Now, one of the clues that Mary and Joseph didn't arrive breathlessly is right there in the story. It reads, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Well, we all, for all we know, the birth could have taken place in the morning, not the evening, as we're led to believe in most nativity productions. And it took place in first century Palestine, a society steeped in honour and shame. It would have been shameful to turn away a couple with royal blood. So now we have the picture of Mary and Joseph arriving, arriving possibly weeks before the birth and probably staying with relatives in their home. So on to the inn. Most nativity plays have an innkeeper, don't they? Well, sorry to break it to you, but it's very unlikely that they stayed in a commercial inn. And the reason is right there in the text. Most humble homes in Palestine had two rooms. 
a big one at the front, and another one either at the back or on the roof that was exclusively for guests. So the family lived in the big one at the front, and it was designed to cater for both the family and the animals. It had two levels: at the front, a lower level, then steps up to a slightly higher level where the family lived, cooked, and slept. In the evening, the family would bring in the animals from the cold and from thieves, and they would sleep in the house. They would also heat the house. They would also eat from troughs found at the end of the upper level, and those troughs were called mangers. So the passage says this: there was no room for them in the inn. It's this translation that's led us astray for centuries. The word here is cataluma, and it's not the word that Luke uses for commercial inn. In another part of his gospel, he knows the word for that and uses it elsewhere. For example, in the Good Samaritan, when the beaten-up man is taken to a commercial inn, Cataluma has a rather broad meaning. It really means a place to stay, but in this context, it clearly refers to a guest room. So there was no room for them in the family's guest room because it was occupied by other visitors. So they probably tucked in with the rest of the family in the main room. That's why when the baby was born, he was laid in one of the feeding troughs in that room, one of the mangers. So next time you hear about Mary and Joseph turning up late at night, breathless with Mary about to give birth, and the couple then shut out of all the inns in town, well, you'll know that that probably didn't happen. What did happen, however, was that the Creator of the universe was born into poverty. That's what we read in John's Gospel. In the beginning. Was the word? The Greek word used there is logos. In Greek thought, the logos was the rational heart of the universe. It was that which turned chaos into order and made sense of the universe. John is telling his readers that the one who governs and makes sense of the universe has, in fact, become a child in a mother's arms. That is why this story is sometimes called the greatest story. Ever told. In a moment, we'll be back with some information about events and activities taking place over the coming weeks in Southampton. And remember that we'll also be taking your calls just before eight o'clock. So call in. Please call us back with any questions about our faith on Southampton eight zero two three five zero five five. You can also email us on studio at unity one hundred one dot org. The following program, Faith on Sunday, may contain opinions, points of view, and statements related to individual faiths. Any such comments expressed on the radio program by the hosts, guests, and phone contributors, or via social media, are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Unity One Hundred One Community Radio. The purpose of Faith on Sunday is to educate and inform listeners on the history and issues. Which affect individual faiths, beliefs, and practices within the community as a whole. Good evening. This is Unity One Hundred One Community Radio, broadcasting across Southampton on one hundred one point one FM, online at unity one hundred one dot org, and on all smartphones. Coming up in this hour, we'll be hearing from Rani Namahi. But first, a couple of items from the calendar. Carol services will be taking place around the city before Christmas, of course. At Bab Bar Church on Saturday, the fourteenth of December, there is a Christmas extravaganza from four to six for children aged R to six. Lots of crafts, games, and a party tea. 
no doubt lots of jelly and ice cream there. On Sunday the 15th of December, next Sunday at Above Bar Church, there is a contemporary Christmas celebration at 6.30. Lots of traditional and also new Christmas music as well. Of course, on Christmas Eve, every church in the city is holding Christmas Eve services. The one at Above Bar is at 6.30pm. These services tend to be absolutely packed, so do arrive early. Across the river in Bitten Park on the Triangle on Friday, December the 13th, between 5.30 and 7.30, there will be carols and a whole lot more. All the local shops will be open. There will be crafts, face painting, I believe, and a chance for the local community to come together. So do come along if you live over in Bitten Park and around that area. Finally, there's a Christmas service on the Sunday before Christmas on the 22nd of December at City Life Church on 286 Burgess Road and also a Christmas Eve late service there on December the 24th, Christmas Eve at 11.30. A lot of those Christmas Eve services start at around 11.30, certainly the one at City Life does, starts at 11.30 to see in Christmas Day at midnight. Well, good evening. You're listening to Faith on Sunday. Today we're looking at the Christian faith and specifically Christmas, an important date in the Christian calendar. And it's my great pleasure to introduce Rani Namahi. Um, uh, tell us a little bit, bit about yourself, Rani. Good evening, Richard. Thank you for inviting me. Um, well, I am third, fourth generation Christian. I've grown up in an Asian Christian home. My background is uh, Indian. My uh, father is from Punjab and my mother's from Rajasthan. And uh, I grew up in this country predominantly. We came here when I was five years old, so I'm probably more British than I am Indian, okay. I would think. Yeah. Um, now, have but, you gone back to India at all to visit yes, relatives back then? Yes, several yeah. times. Um, but it's, it's kind of, as much as we, I still relate to the Asian culture, I think I've been here Quite, well, quite a while. In all your life. Uh, yeah, yeah, most of my <laughs> life, yeah. Um, I was brought up as a Christian. My parents, um, right from the beginning, um, you know, especially my mother, brought us up praying, going to church, following the Christian traditions, um, and Christmas especially. We followed the, the local tradition. We, were, we used to go to a, a Methodist church, okay. which so we just followed the... the practice there okay. and went to the you mentioned about Christmas Eve services yes we yes. grew up doing that that yeah. was a family tradition in our house um, did that every year um, but also grew up going to an Asian church as well an Asian fellowship which um, which was a bit further away but we would get to it whenever we could and especially at Christmas time especially okay. the big events and um, you mentioned earlier about um, sort of family and community amongst Indeed. Asian and I think that's very, very much alive in very the Asian important. community. Very yes. important. And so um, the, age, the, the the Christmas service would very much reflect that in that the whole family would be there. And right. we'd be there all day. Wow. We'd be there all day. All day. All day. You know, we, we'd have the service in the morning. And did you eat there as well Yeah, together? we'd have yeah. The, the lunch would usually be donated by one of the families. And every year it would be a different family. Fantastic. And... Um, and where in the earlier years, uh, where Asian Christians were sort of, there weren't many fellowships in this country. Many, the one that we went to in Southall, many people would come from around the country. Oh wow! There was only a handful of Asian fellowships. Uh, Oxford was one of them, and this particular one in, in Wembley, in Southall. 
Um, so, you know, we'd have people there from the local community, but also from further afield. So how and long have you lived in Southampton? 20 years. I moved okay. to Southampton when I got married. Okay. Uh, it's been 20 years. Now, I understand that you have a, a short Christmas reflection. I'd love you to, to read that to us now. That would be terrific. But, um, it's interesting when you asked about Christmas. Uh, I did get to think about um, growing up, how Christmas was very much about tradition and, tra- uh, and about the things that we did every year. And I think sometimes um, there's a danger of us actually forgetting the, the underlying significance of what's going on there. You know, it's, uh, the whole story that you said and that was read from Luke earlier on, it's, it's a beautiful story, um, even though it may have been misrepresented. It's a beautiful story about the baby being born and about the angels who foretell the story and the wise men and the shepherds who come. And that's, a, you know, it's an absolutely amazing story. Um, but I became aware as I was reflecting on it that even as I was growing up, the significance of the baby Jesus, about God coming as a baby, I think sometimes... It can be forgotten in amongst the joy and the celebration and the tradition. And, uh, and I sometimes wonder if he um, overlooked the magnanimity of that, the significance of a, a powerful, supreme God, um, you know, creator of the universe, um, who has everything in his hand, choosing to sort of humble himself and come down in human form. And I think if we just take so it's a few minutes to just reflect on that, that is, that's huge. So, the, so the phrase "Emmanuel, God with us," that has great significance for you. Great significance, I, and I think we sometimes don't fully appreciate and acknowledge what that means. You know, this is a, this is the this is the God we're talking about who could who created us, who could crush us in a second if he if he should choose to get rid of us, it would be over and done with like that. You know, yeah. if he. And yet he chooses to come and be with us. That, to me, is wow, it's incredible. It speaks of his incredible love uh, for mankind, you know. And um, the psalmist writes, David uh, writes, uh, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you should care for him? And I've often reflected on that. Who, who am I? Who are we that you should care so much that you would want to come and meet with us so that we could know you, so that we could have a relationship with you. you Now, you spoke there about the way the story expresses God's love. Is that because God comes in Jesus to suffer with us and for us? Uh, How is that love expressed in the story, do you think? I think, um, well, well, firstly understanding that we've been separated from God because of sin in our lives. We have been separated from God. But but God doesn't give up on us. He chooses um, to still pursue us, and he wants us back in that relationship. So Jesus is coming, uh, and later on his death is what makes the way for us to come back into that relationship with God, to come back into um, the family of God. So that that's kind of crucial. But also Jesus living here on earth and, and living our lives and understanding what we go through. That when we, when the Bible talks a lot about how we should live our lives, right? But, and, um, you know, talks about sin and talks about temptation, things and trials that will come our way. But the God who's telling us to, um, you know, live a good life, has gone through the same trials and temptations, has gone through the same suffering. He understands that concept to, to be, uh, having been human 
in that way, you know, to be fully divine and be human at the same time. He can, so he, he has also been hungry, been yeah, disappointed, so he can relate to been us. thirsty. Yeah, he's done the same, had the same experiences that we had. Absolutely, and he's not asking us to be any different or do things differently to what he himself has experienced. So you know, he we, he knows that we will go through those things, um, but in all of that, we are required to live. A life worthy of what God's calling us to live and to trust Him and to have faith in Him. And so, yeah. Yeah, we talked earlier actually uh, before you came in about trusting the story both of Mary and Joseph is one to do with trusting God in a, in a difficult path that they've been called to walk down, for sure. Are there any characters in the story that you identify with? Have you, have you imagined being a shepherd or a wise man? You kind of entered into the story. How do you enter into the story? I don't think I've ever imagined myself as one of them, but if there was one character that really speaks to me is the character of Mary. I think that's that's absolutely um, beautiful image of uh, absolute trust. You know, Mary, I mean, if, if imagining her to be a young, I'm not sure of her age, but imagining her to be a young teenager maybe, yeah. um, and I, I have a teenage daughter myself, and I, you know, she? my, she's 16. Right. And I imagine that if she had to go through something like that, it, how how disruptive, how worrying, how traumatizing the whole experience would be. And yet, somehow, the picture of Mary that comes across from the Bible story is that someone who's totally calm um, and totally trusting God, and she she. Uh, the scripture talks about how she um, remembers things in her heart and ponders over them. That's right, ponders, them, ponders in her them in yes. her heart. Um, and I think, wow, it's almost like this this young woman shows maturity beyond her age in that. Um, and yeah, her faith in God just screams out to me. It does, it just mm. jumps off the page yeah, when you read the story. Mm. Absolutely. Well, you're listening to Faith on Sunday on Unity 101, and this week we're looking at the Christian faith, and specifically Christmas. We'll be right back after this. Good evening. You're listening to Faith on Sunday on Unity 101. Time for some more music. This is Oh Holy Night from The Vineyard. Good evening. You're listening to Faith on Sunday on Unity 101. That was Oh Holy Night from Vineyard Music. I understand that we have a caller on the line. No, we don't have a caller on the line. But if you would like to call, please call us on 8023-5055. You can also email us on studio at unity101.org or text the word unity, then space, plus a message and send to 60999. I'd like to turn back to Pete Williams. Pete uh, is the philosopher in residence at Damaris Trust. And uh, we're back in the Christmas story, Pete, uh, with these characters called angels. I understand that you wrote a book about angels. Angels. Okay. Published with Paternoster Press a number Wonderful. of years ago. What is an angel? Uh, an angel is an immaterial person created by God. And uh, Christians uh, generally uh, think of angels as applying to good immaterial uh, persons created by God who, who uh, carry messages by God and do various uh, works of God. They appear throughout the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament. Uh, and then we have a, a, a classification of the fallen angels 
all, all the demons. Uh, these are these uh, immaterial persons who, like us, are in rebellion against God. And in the story, they are seen by the shepherds. Do we know what they look like? Well, no, we don't know what they look like. We don't get very detailed descriptions. And when you do get uh, detailed descriptions of angels in the Bible, uh, when we get the sort of descriptions of wings and eyes and so on in Revelation, that tends to be more sort of um, symbolic language, talking about the, the power or the ability of angels to suddenly go from one place to another. Uh, when they actually appear literally within the text, you generally find they just look like a normal person. They're just described as a man in a white garment or something. So they don't uh, look particularly different from you and I. But clearly, um, You, you in pick this up case, on who they are from the context and what they do. Right, but clearly in this context, the shepherds were terrified. So they yeah. must have been pretty impressive. In, in this context, they had a pretty powerful uh, vision of angels and you get the, the choir of angels uh, singing and praising God. Uh, and so on. So this was a particularly kind of spectacular uh, angelic uh, vision or visitation. Wonderful. Now, we do have someone on the line. I understand that Tamin is on the phone. Tamin, welcome to Faith on Sunday. What's your question? Thank you very much. First of all, I'd like to say thank you to the studio and to hello to everyone in the studio. Hello there. Um, um, second of all, I have two questions. It's very general but it's not specific to christmas but this is to do with the christianity faith okay um i had a, uh, two questions which one of them is that um how do you how does christianity perceive uh, jesus prophet jesus to be is i mean do they perceive him to be as the son of god or do they perceive him to be as a prophet and a human like the prophet which is the prophet muhammad in in, in islam that's one of the questions. And the second okay. question, which well, would lead on from there. Tamin, oh, okay. let's, let's deal with that first question. That's a, okay. that's a big question. Yeah. I'll give a short answer. Maybe Pete or Helen or Rani can chip in as well. The distinctive thing about Christianity is that while Christ uh, acts in a way like a prophet, he is well beyond prof- just being a prophet, the, ex- the remarkable claim of Christianity is that Christ is, when he comes to earth, he is both God and he is man. He is both together at the same time. He is, in addition, uh, one of the members of the Trinity. The Trinity is the Father, the Son, that's Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And those three are also one. Now, that is a great philosophical challenge, but it is the claim of the Christian faith that God is three in one. And when we come to Christmas, we see the moment at which the second person of the Trinity, Christ, become, comes in human flesh and comes uh, amongst us. Pete, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, sure. So the, the, the Christian claim about God being Trinity is, is not that God is, is three persons and one person, which would be a contradiction. Uh, it's, it's not a contradictory claim because it's the claim that there is one God who is essentially composed of three divine persons. So three divine persons who are together form the one God. And it, I think it's part of the Christian understanding of, of God being love, that God is, is self-sufficient within love, that he contains community within him, himself. Uh, and that then feeds into the, the Christian understanding of humanity made in God's image, 
that uh, as individuals we are in the divine image, but also our, our, our communal nature, our uh, uh, loving uh, nature, but love between uh, people is also part of that image of God, therefore. And one, one final comment, Tamen. One of the things which uh, is distinctive about Christianity as opposed to the other religions is that in the other religions there are various uh, figures who are raised up um, as people who point people to God. So whether it is uh, Confucius or whether it is uh, Buddha, that's not really a religion but more a kind of internal way of perceiving reality, or whether it is the Prophet Muhammad pointing people towards God, the Christian claim is that God himself has come in a man uh, amongst us here on earth. And that's a very distinctive Christian claim. Does that help at all? Thank you, yes. That was a very comprehensive answer. Thank you to all. Um, but uh, am, am I correct to, to believe, or am I correct to perceive from what you guys have said, that God, as you said just a minute ago, that God has come through Jesus. So Jesus, would, be, in other words, is a God himself, right? That's, that's correct. He is, yeah? he is, in Christian understanding, both God and man at the same time. And let me just quickly tell you why that's so, so important. Mm-hmm. Human beings have a basic problem. We are separated from God. We call this sin. And therefore, in order to be saved, what we need is someone who is big enough, strong enough, powerful enough to take our sin upon himself. And that is the claim of the Christian faith, that when Christ came to earth, he came not only to share our humanity, but when he was placed upon the cross, and he bore the sin of the world. Because he was perfect and without sin, he is worthy to take upon him the sin of the world. He doesn't have to bear upon the cross his own sin because he's perfection. He bears the sin of the world. But because he is divine, he, he is unable to be held down by death, as it were. He therefore dies and then is raised to life. He is resurrected as the triumphant God who, ra- who is raised, given a new body, and then calls us to be in, in relationship with him on into the future. Does that help? Yeah, thank you very much. All thank right, you. thank you very much for, for calling, Tamin. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Pete, just turning to you uh, quickly, uh, we've talked about angels. Uh, talk to us about the wise men and the star, if you could. Sure. Well, there's there's a, a deep connection here back into Israel's past. Uh, Israel, at a certain stage of their history, went into exile into Babylon. They were conquered by the Babylonian Empire. And within the Babylonian Empire, uh, Magi, or these kind of sort of wise man astrologer uh, figures, were uh, high-ranking members of the Babylonian court. Uh, there's uh, the uh, the Jewish philosopher Philo, writing in about 50 AD, actually mentions uh, the order of the Magi. He says, "Who silently make research into the facts of nature." So there's there they these kind of stargazing astrologer wise men figures um, who may have, uh, through the Jewish exile in Babylon, known some of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah figure. Uh, and then in their stargazing, uh, if you w- want to go into this, I think the, the best thing for me to do is recommend uh, a book uh, called The Star of Bethlehem, okay. An Astronomer's View, written by Mark Kidger, 
and published by Princeton University Press. Okay. Uh, he's a Princeton uh, astronomer, and he goes into uh, what we can work out um, through modern astronomy about what these uh, ancient Magi as- astrologers uh, would have been seeing in the heavens and what those things would have symbolised within their sort of understanding of the universe that might have triggered them to make this journey uh, to uh, to Bethlehem ultimately. So are we to believe then that they saw what a very brightly shining star? Is it a, are we thinking comets? Or are we thinking an actual star? Yeah, I, I think the best uh, theories uh, is that it's either a comet or a nova, uh, that came after a series of astronomical events, in- including an important uh, uh, triple conjunction of planets, uh, of various planets that had symbolic uh, meaning okay. for the Magi, that, that would, in their thought system, have talked about a new king arising uh, for the Jews and so on. And uh, Kidger, in his book, goes into it very well. Uh, similar conclusions arrived at by. Colin Humphreys in his paper, The Star of Bethlehem, which if you Google online, you can find easily uh, a copy of that online for free. Personally, I think the wise men are possibly the coolest guys in the Bible. I'm fascinated by them and I appreciated uh, listening to that. Thank you. You're listening to Faith on Sunday on Unity 101. This week, looking at the Christian faith and specifically Christmas. We'll be right back after this. Thousands of listeners, 10 languages. 24 hours a day. Southampton's Unity 101. Good evening, I'm Richard Collins and this is Faith on Sunday. This evening looking at Christmas. Good evening, that was God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen from the Vineyard. You're listening to Faith on Sunday here on Unity 101.1 FM. And today we're looking at the Christian faith and specifically Christmas. I'm in the studio this evening with Pete Williams. Uh, Pete has been taking us through some of the details of Christmas. And uh, we have a couple more to cover. Let's talk about shepherds. Indeed. Well, I think one of the important things to to grasp about the the fact that these angels that we were talking about appear to to shepherds is, again, part of uh, the humbleness of God, part of uh, the way in which God is reaching out to everyone, because shepherds in that culture had a very low social status. Uh, so uh, it's not that the, the announcement of the, the Messiah coming into the world is given to King Herod and his court, but to these lowly shepherds uh, on the hillside. Uh, another really interesting thing about them is that, that these shepherds would have been keeping some very special sheep. The sheep around the Bethlehem area were sacrificial lambs uh, for the temple uh, uh, worship system of the Jews. Uh, uh, these lambs would have been slaughtered at the Passover festival. Oh, yeah. uh, and so God first reveals the Messiah's birth to these shepherds who, whose job it is to protect uh, the lambs for the Passover. Uh, and then, of course, Jesus uh, in the Last Supper uh, takes ho- over that whole imagery of the Passover and uh, um, the, the sacrificial lambs and so on and applies that imagery to himself and what he's going to do on the cross. Uh, so there's a big resonance there between the beginning of the story uh, and the, the crucifixion uh, apex of the, the story of Christ. And Christ is seen as the shepherd of Israel himself, isn't he? That's right. He, uh, Christ describes himself as being the good shepherd, right. uh, which is a description that the Old Testament scriptures had applied to God himself. So it's one of the ways in which uh, Jesus claims uh, to be on a par 
uh, with God, to be uh, walking in God's shoes, if you like, when he says, I am the good shepherd. So there they are, they're out on the hills, they are they are tending their flocks mm. by night, aren't they? And they are surrounded by these angels. We tend to see them as kind of bumbling people, but they weren't necessarily, <laughs> no. you know... Uh, these would have been hardy guys, you know, they're doing a hard job, um, they have to they really do have to protect these sheep from wild animals and, and so on. Um, with uh, without the aid of modern technology, uh, they're out there uh, in the fields guarding their flocks. I think one of the things that I like about the shepherd connection is this idea of the inclusivity of God. Mm. That when He comes uh, as a baby, the first people to come and worship Him mm. are the lowest in society. And if the lowest in society are invited into this story, that kind of says, well, then everybody is invited from the top to the bottom. It doesn't matter who you are. You are invited to worship at the manger. Uh, And people often feel excluded uh, in Mm. society Mm. for various reasons. And one of the things I love about the story is that it's communicating that God has come near. He is with us and he is available from the shepherds at the bottom of society mm. right through to, I suppose the wise men would have been, although they're from another country, yeah, yeah. a more elevated position in Definitely. society. So everybody is included. Okay, let's move on to a character who just pops into the New Testament mm. uh, called King Herod. Tell us about him. Yes. We, we know a fair bit about King Herod from the Jewish historian Josephus, Uh, And uh, from the archaeological record as well, we have various bits of archaeology and and buildings that he built under his reign and so on. Uh, But basically, Herod uh, is uh, a king imposed upon uh, the Jews by the Roman Empire, who are in charge at at this stage of their history. Um, And uh, he feels himself very much caught uh, between a rock and a hard place. Um, the um, the Babylonian, the Persian Empire on one side uh, and the Roman Empire on the other had been tussling over Israel for a long time. Israel is at this stage a kind of buffer state between Rome and Persia. And that's one of the reasons why when these magi who have this high-ranking position uh, in, the wise in traditional, the, right. the wise men turn up, he's so sort of worried uh, by that because he uh, actually historically speaking one of the, the things that these uh, wise men did within the persian the, the babylonian court where they originated was appointment of kings uh, within the the uh, babylonian system and although that's partly you know back in the history they're, they're still sort of reflecting that culture and they here they come they, they and say uh, to him you know we've seen the star of this uh, uh, full side of a new king of the Jews and so on and Herod is really feeling that his neck is on the line and we know from the uh, biblical and from the extra biblical historical record um, that he was not past uh, bumping off a few people shall we say in order to keep his job secure uh, he this is a guy who would bump off members of his family uh, very happily to keep his he's uh, like a mafia his, figure yeah yeah <laughs> so he's not a pleasant chap and uh, yeah um, so when we think about uh, what happened with the killing of the babies, are we talking dozens? Are we talking hundreds? How, how many babies would have been killed? It's a horrible part of the story. It is a horrible part of the story, um, but it, it, it's only uh, Bethlehem, which is a, a small community, and it's in, in Virons, um, and uh, 
I've seen different numbers estimated by different scholars, but between maybe 10 to 60 babies, um, which is a a horrible thing, but weighed in the balance against some of the other things that Herod did, um, not at all surprising. Um, When he was dying, he had 3,000 leading people locked up in 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 an amphitheater uh, with orders to the soldiers that they should kill these 3,000 people upon receiving news that he had died. Because he probably thought, uh, I know people aren't going to be sad that I'm gone, but I want there to be weeping and wailing when I die. Oh you know, he gosh. was like making a big statement. Fortunately, when he died, we're told that the soldiers didn't go through with it, sort of realising that, that there was going to be no comeback on this because Herod's gone. Right. You know, but this is the kind of character that we're talking about. It's a brutal world that Christ is coming into, Definitely. certainly. Well, you're listening to Faith on Sunday here on Unity 101.1 FM. Today, looking at Christmas, we'll be back right after this. Your community station, Southampton's Unity 101. Welcome back to Faith on Sunday this evening, looking at Christmas. Well... I have all three of my guests now in front of me. I have Rani Namahi, um, Helen Savage, and Pete Williams uh, with me. And so we're just going to, together, have a look at some of our memories of Christmas, uh, the things that you do in your family now or the things that you've done in the past. Helen, talk to me about uh, your Christmas memories. I was um, brought up in a non-Christian household, but nevertheless we... um celebrated Christmas a lot. My mum really enjoyed Christmas. Um, I just found the whole thing very exciting. There was, um, we always had a tree and I can remember coming down in my nighty and sitting under the tree looking at the lights and it was just really exciting. Um, I can also remember that Christmas was the only day on which I was allowed to eat as much chocolate as I could stuff down my own throat and nobody was going to tell me that I wasn't allowed it. Did, did you eat a lot of chocolate? I ate, I still do, as you know. You know, one Christmas... <laughs> One Chris, I can't believe I'm telling people on the radio this. I, I was about 11 years old and I was given three Mars bars. But instead of saving them, I ate all of them in a row. I was so sick. Welcome to the world of okay. a woman. Any, any other Christmas memories, any particular traditions that you have in your household? Yes, we always had a stocking. Um, and in fact, my mum still makes me a stocking. I think this year could be the first one when I've said, I think probably now it, it, you can stop. Um, but, uh, and yes, your boys have uh, stockings? They do though? have stockings, yes. When do they open? Immediately on Christmas morning? As soon morning? as they wake up. So, oh, yes, the other thing I do remember is that we were allowed at four o'clock in the morning, when I was a child, we were allowed to come in and open the presents. And then my parents Four in went, the morning? Four in the morning, because we were so wild with excitement, we couldn't wait. Uh, yes, four in the morning. And then we pushed off and they went back to sleep. My children aren't allowed to sleep. Pete, did you, did you <laughs> have a stocking? No, I had, I had to wait. I had oh, to wait you? for the morning. Um... <laughs> <laughs> go down and we we all uh, have the presents un- underneath the tree uh, and then uh, you sort of have to take turns someone dishes the presents out in a sort of orderly fashion so that everybody gets included there's no wild rush it has to be um, you know, here's one for mum and here's a present from so Rudolph all, for dad you all watch <laughs> and wait yeah you have to see each agony, other see who gets what <laughs> and, yeah how about in your house uh, now Helen do you do you one at a time for Tom and Harry we yes, they don't come in at four o'clock in the morning. No, I couldn't I'm, cope I'm with glad that. To hear but that. Uh, about six thirty is allowed. Oh my gosh. Um, yes, well, we do the stockings in the morning in our bed, uh, one at a time. They try and watch each other, and then we do have an orderly 
giving yeah. of presents later on as well when everybody's there, all the sort of family presents. What about you, Rani? You you have kids as well. I do. Yes. How, how old are your kids? Mine are the teenagers, 16 and 17. 16 and 17. Yeah, and they've always had stockings. I've always given them stockings um, when they were younger. They still insist on having stockings, so I've tried to discontinue it. <laughs> no, but they still now, what do you put in the stocking? Well, that's when they were younger. It was lots of little toys and sweets and things. But as they've got older, it's become a bit more difficult, a bit more expensive to find small items to put in stockings. So it tends to be things like socks and ties from the sun and things they need and for practical school. stuff <laughs> rather than it's bit more costly trying to fill up a stocking for a teenager you see my mum used to put a walnut <laughs> and, <laughs> orange juice. and an orange. orange yeah i did okay put so we're sitting juice. downstairs in our bedroom with the walnut how are we going to open the walnut would roll under the bed we'd find it in may you know <laughs> oh. halfway through halfway through the year and to put chocolate orange in more so That's than idea. i think they prefer that now, you were telling me um, a little bit earlier that you uh, have put on a nativity play. Yeah. Th- tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, uh, at our church, so we put on a nativity, um, which I wanted it to be slightly different. Um, you know, nativities are usually associated with you know, the little children who put on, and like you said, your six to eight-year-olds. Um, but I wanted to put on something which involved the whole church, or, you know, which re- represented um, the, the whole church. Um, because Christmas to me is about family. Christmas, you know, the whole Christmas story is about family. It's, 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 uh, and there's all ages, all uh, personalities, all skills within the church. So many talents. And I, w- I wanted to incorporate all of that. So we put on, we, we uh, wrote the story ourselves. My daughter wrote the, the script and adapted it, made it a bit Sort of modern day um and we used all ages the you know from the little children who uh, played the sheep uh, the reception year played the sheep and then the um we had different ones playing all the different parts well, again all ages must have been and, wonderful yeah and then we had an orchestra we put a, a, an orchestra together so we Whereas we normally have a modern worship time, we wanted to, I wanted to incorporate some of the other sort of classical instruments who don't normally get to play on a Sunday. So by putting on a, um, an, an orchestra, they, we got our violinists out and our cellists out and our, our flautists, those who don't normally get to play on a Sunday. And then we, some of our older members uh, formed a choir. We had wow. a choir as well, which uh, brought in some of the skills of our older members who love singing. But again, would probably not they're not part of the, the the usual Sunday worship team, music team. So it kind of it encompassed a wide range of people, and it was spectacular. I thought it was amazing, spectacular. Now, is there anything specifically Asian in terms of maybe the food that you would eat at Christmas, or is it is it Turkey? Do you go the the British route of of Turkey and Christmas pudding, or is the well, we always have um, at the church. We will always at our church. We will always have food, and it will be on, at our Christmas service, carol service, um, leading up to Christmas. And that will definitely be Asian. Okay. It will be an Indian meal. Um, whilst growing up, we had Asian uh, food, but I think whilst the longer we've been here in this country, I think our our, our menu kind of changed slightly, and, and we. Um, our, my parents uh, gradually switched over to cooking a roast on Christmas, but. 
our roast was not a roast turkey. It was a, a roast tandoori chicken. <laughs> oh, wonderful. But with all the trimmings. Tasty. Yeah. With all the trimmings. Lovely, absolutely lovely. And even to this day, if, if I'm having Christmas at my parents' house, it will still be a roast tandoori chicken. So this Christmas, will that will you be <laughs> well, having Well, this Christmas, roast? I'm going to be... Um, it's slightly different this year. Since I've been married, our... Um, patterns change slightly i tend to have christmas eve celebration with my husband's family and that tends to be a traditional british okay menu um roast lamb roast pork roast turkey um yeah i'm not Wonderful. gonna be at my parents out this year so what about you two food on christmas day lots of it oh, traditional I try not to have too much of it uh but uh yes definitely the, the traditional turkey christmas roast, turkey uh, christmas cake christmas pudding uh, depending on yeah. eggnog, no eggnog, no brandy uh, butter. I have been known to have a traditional posset, but uh, <laughs> <What's> a posset? <laughs> that What's goes that? back back to talking about uh, Dickens' time oh, in Victorian okay. England. Yes, sort of. Okay. Uh, what about you, Helen? Uh, turkey and all the trimmings. Yep, Christmas cake made by my sister-in-law. That's tradition. She has the biggest um, alcohol-filled cake I've ever come across. Oh, okay. Yes, it's very nice. Now, one of the things that we have in my family, just finally here, is my mum's Norwegian. And so on Christmas Eve, we eat a special dish. It's a, a rice dish into which she places an almond in one of the bowls. And we go digging around in our bowls throughout the meal. And if you end up with the almond, which you're supposed to hide for most of the meal, you finally say, I have the almond, then you win a gift at the end. And we still do that with my kids. They absolutely love that. So, to finish off this section, uh, Helen, I wonder if you could read a poem by John Betjeman. It's called Christmas. The bells of waiting advent ring. The tortoise stove is lit again. And lamp oil light across the night has caught the streaks of winter rain. In many a stained glass window sheen from crimson lake to hooker's green. The holly in the windy hedge and round the manor house the yew will soon be stripped to deck the ledge, the altar, font and arch and pew, so that the villagers can say, the church looks nice on Christmas Day. Provincial public houses blaze, corporation tramcars clang, on lighted tenements I gaze, where paper decorations hang, and bunting in the red town hall says, Merry Christmas to you all. And London shops on Christmas Eve are strung with silver bells and flowers as hurrying clerks the city leave to pigeon-haunted classic towers and marble clouds go scudding by the many-steepled London sky. And girls in slacks remember Dad and oafish louts remember Mum and sleepless children's hearts are glad. And Christmas morning bells say come even to shining ones who dwell safe in the Dorchester Hotel. And is it true, this most tremendous tale of all, seen in a stained glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall, the maker of the stars and sea, became a child on earth for me? And is it true, for if it is, no loving fingers tying strings around those tissued fripperies, the sweet and silly Christmas things, bath salts and inexpensive scent, and hideous tie so kindly meant? No love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, nor all the steeple-shaking bells can with this single truth compare that God was man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine. Thank you, Helen. Well, it's been a joy and a privilege to spend the past two hours with you. I hope you've all enjoyed 
learning about the Christmas story. Possibly you've heard things you've never heard before. I hope too that you feel free to visit a Christian church this coming Christmas time. There's great music, sometimes mince pies, a little punch, and a friendly welcome, hopefully. Christmas is a fantastic time to go and investigate the Christian faith. You would be welcome at any of the churches around Southampton. Just check out service times on the internet. For now, I'd like to wish everyone a happy Christmas. Uh, and we look forward to next year. As playing us out, we have Casting Crowns with Christmas Offering.